You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, July 30th, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. And Jay Novella. Hola. How is everyone this evening? Doing Pretty well. relaxed. Relaxed? Doing well. Kicking yeah. back. Not as relaxed as Rebecca, however, who has the night off. Mm-hmm. Evan, what is, what is special about tonight? 1971, the Apollo 15 mission. David Scott and James Irwin, astronauts, on the Apollo Lunar Module Falcon, land with the first lunar rover on the moon. Cool. First lunar rover on the moon. Very cool. Now, Evan, are those, those rovers are still up there, right? Well, did they ever go, is, is the controversy. Right? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, though, can't, can't we see the equipment that was left up there? Actually, no. Well, it's interesting that you say you asked that, Jay. Yeah, we've actually... An emailer recently asked us that, or said, I have this you know, moon hoax conspiracy theorist friend, and he wants to know why we can't just point the Hubble telescope at the moon and see... The equipment, the landing sites, mm-hmm. and the and the Hubble does not have the resolution to see any of the equipment we left behind. Um, the European lunar satellite Smart One might have been able to view the landing sites with enough resolution, but its trajectory didn't take it low enough uh, over the over the landing sites. The purpose of that probe was to scout out new landing sites, uh, not to take a peek at old ones. So. We don't have anything that could really image directly the lunar surface with sufficient resolution to see the stuff we left behind. Behind, but but we know that that would not end the controversy. No, they'd say that we yeah, faked the exactly. pictures. Right? There's too many outs. Is it, you know, there's too many outs and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that's the whole point of a conspiracy theory. Any evidence against your theory is is part of the conspiracy. Case closed. Well, thank goodness there are no astronauts actually, you know, lending credence to any conspiracy theories out there. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Segway. <laughs> In the last week, astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who was being interviewed uh, dur- during a radio interview, said that, that he knows that the U.S. government is hiding evidence of alien contact. He said, in fact, that he was, quote-unquote, briefed by NASA about this, this contact. There's really nothing new. Edgar, Edgar Mitchell has been saying this for a while. He, you know, he's been uh, a bit of a kook for a long time. He founded the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Again, big red, big red flag whenever you have a qualifier in front of the word right. science. This is a special new kind of science. <laughs> nothing new. It's just that he was being interviewed. He repeated the same old claims that he's been making, and it's made another round in the, uh, in the news cycle. But it is interesting that he used the word briefed. So that makes it sound as if he was Sounds given official. official information yeah, from NASA, which, of course, NASA then quickly denied. Mm-hmm. Well, did he actually, Steve, did he actually have NASA and briefed in the same sentence? Or my memory was that he, was, he said he was briefed, but that he was, he was also told by uh, people at NASA of, of the uh, the cover up and stuff. So I don't think he specifically necessarily said briefed by NASA. Although that was kind of what you could imply that. Yeah, he says that I happen to have been privileged enough to be in on the fact that we've been visited on this planet and the UFO phenomena is real. Uh, mm-hmm. He also said 
I've been in military and intelligence circles who know that beneath the surface of what has been public knowledge, yes, we have been visited. Yeah, loose implications there. Briefed, yeah. Yeah, briefed is the key, key word. I, I listened to a uh, my phone interview that he conducted, and he went into a lot of detail. I mean, he 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 made a lot of claims about the government, the world governments actively covering up all, mm-hmm. all of the UFO information. And I mean, he sounds convincing, like as if he believes what he's saying. And I, the whole time, I just kept asking myself, like, what's his angle? He's yeah. a true believer. I think there's nothing more sophisticated than that. No, but uh, Jay, I think what Jay. The point Jay's trying to make, and I was trying to think the same thing, is not that um, does he believe it or is he or is he crazy or is or what? It's just that how could he be telling the truth that he was you know that he was told by officials, and you know how how is that possible? And have him still be you know straight with us? And he says that some of us have been privileged enough to have been briefed on some of it. So. You know who did that? I don't know, but my guess is that he was just talking to people at NASA who just happened to buy into all this baloney, and uh, so so to him that's like, well, yeah, people at NASA, be- you know, believe this too, but it's yeah. not necessarily an official, you know, a conspiracy and an official position of uh, people at NASA. Could it have been a false memory that he generated at some point for himself, and eventually just became part of his philosophy and his, and his entire story? That's probably part of it, Evan. I think you're right. You know, what Bob's saying is probably correct as well, that he's mixing together things other just employees of NASA or people at NASA said to him that was not official, and he's either misremembering or misinterpreting that or now mispresenting it as, as, as if it were official, or he was reading between the lines of things that were being said at NASA, filling in the in his perceived um, gaps or the subtext of what was being said, and then over the years, his memory of that fits more and more more with the story that he has come to believe. Uh, that's the kind of memory that that humans have. We have, you know, thematically based or story based memories, and the details usually morph over time to fit the overall picture that we believe. He believes that there's a NASA cover-up, and his memory of maybe specific things that he was told by specific people probably has morphed over the years just to make that story tighter and more compelling. And now he's being interviewed years later, and he's you know throwing out claims that he may honestly believe, but if you dig down deep, they're, they're based on nothing. And he certainly doesn't have any hard evidence to present, like always with the UFO mm-hmm. Community, they're they're never forthcoming with actual evidence. It's always hearsay and innuendo, right? right. Like and documents. it's just around yeah. the corner. I mean, we, they've been saying this for forty years now, and he repeats it as well. That he says this is really starting to open up. I think we're headed for a real disclosure, and some serious organizations are moving in that direction. That carrot has been held out in front of the the UFO community and the public for decades. For decades, they've been just on the verge of releasing all this information that he is privileged to know is is there, but the public hasn't known. The other thing that doesn't make any sense about this is if he was given this information, why isn't he giving us the real details? You know, Mm -hmm. uh, what's he holding back? And if he isn't holding back, then why would he be told vague generalities but not anything specific or pertinent? You know, that's a good point, Steve. He would, at this stage in the game, with everything being declassified, he would be able to give details 
that no one has heard at some point, at whatever the declassification happened, and you're right, he hasn't given one interesting factoid or detail that would give us any indication that there's something behind this. He is, he's a human fuzzy photograph. Where's the beef, right. Edgar? I mean, give us, <laughs> exactly. give us something. Exactly. Come on, it's, it's really ridiculous that you're just repeating the same old tripe that we've heard for decades. If you've really got the inside scoop, if you've been briefed by, by officials, then give us a, a name. Who briefed you? Who briefed you 30 years ago or, or even more recently? But he's trying something. to have it both ways. He's trying to say, I have privileged information. I'm revealing it, but nothing that's interesting or self-validating. Nothing that would actually that, – that you can investigate or that, that can in any way validate what I'm saying. So it's just, he's just trading off of his, you know, his fame, his standing as an astronaut to lend credibility to what is just another empty UFO story. And unfortunately, he's got the street cred, you know, that, that a lot of people find compelling. Oh, yeah. um, that, of course, I'm sure the UFO community, is. this is like the, the best week they've had in, in years. Somebody this high up, apparently, that has this inside information finally coming yeah. out. And they yeah, because be the headlines are, the headlines are, NASA astronaut Edgar Mitchell claims alien contact cover-up, not some crank you've never heard of claims alien contact cover-up, right? So that's what, that's what gets it in the news cycle. This is the same hijacking they did with the Jimmy Carter story yeah. that we've covered several yeah. times before. This is the exact same thing. There was another UFO story in the news this week, this one just from yesterday. Uh, Nick Pope, who is also a UFO true believer, the author of Open Skies, Closed Minds, and also was in charge of UFO investigations for the British Ministry of Defense from 1991 to 1994, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, I'm not sure how he got that in there, saying that the, the fact that the United States no longer investigates UFOs is making us vulnerable to terrorist attacks. Oh, yeah, of course. Right? So this is a pretty pathetic gambit on his part, saying, oh, you know, we really need to take these UFOs seriously because this may present some kind of security threat to to the United States. And he also is blaming skeptics for being dismissive, which kind of goes along with his book title, you know, Open Skies, Closed Minds. The premise of his, of his op-ed is that, you know, comes out very, very early. He says, a healthy skepticism about extraterrestrial space travelers leads people to disregard UFO sightings without a moment's thought. That's frankly not a fair assessment, in my right. opinion, of of the UFO skeptical community that actually spends a lot of time thinking quite deeply about what could be a, a reasonable or plausible explanation for, for many, many sightings. Mm-hmm. That's sort of their knee-jerk accusation. Oh, we're closed-minded and we dismiss things out of hand. And in fact, that's not what we do. We spend our time talking about it much more than the, you know, the generic scientific community does. And also, it, it implies that we don't want there to be a positive conclusion, mm-hmm. which is absolutely wrong. I mean, I would love it if they had any kind of proof. To the very day I die, I want it. Bring it yeah. on. Or if there was at least yeah. an, an incredibly interesting event or a piece of evidence or something, yeah. we would be extremely interested in that. Because it's, if it's something that we, we can't explain, but and there's some meat to it, it's not just, again, hearsay or some lame witness then uh, that something interesting is going on. Of course we'd be interested in that. So the whole premise is flawed. He mentions uh, several cases 
Again, really just using this as a thinly disguised excuse to talk about what he finds are some compelling cases. Uh, one, without mentioning it by name, he talks about a uh, UFO sighting in, at a, on a, an American Air Force base in the UK on December 26th, 1980. And this actually is the Rendlesham Forest case, which, again, amounts to just a couple of witnesses who saw some lights they couldn't identify. And yeah, the lights had some strange properties, but now we're basing it on, again, no physical evidence of of what they saw. Strange lights are not necessarily alien spacecraft. There's plenty of mundane explanations that can't be ruled out with the evidence available that could explain them. But what the UFO community does and what Nick Pope does is they take the details of the eyewitness accounts at face value, and then they say that Nothing known could explain could have these characteristics: this size, speed, etc., maneuverability. Is that the argument from ignorance? Uh, no, it's actually just it's prematurely assuming that eyewitness testimony is accurate. It's starting from the premise that what they described they saw was actually accurate, and it's it's prematurely eliminating or not considering the alternative explanation that the witnesses are inaccurate that you can't estimate size and speed and distance, for example, uh, very well, especially at night, especially against the sky, that there are tons of optical illusions at play. If you see lights, your brain will tend to connect the dots, and three disconnected lights could then be perceived in your brain as a mile-wide UFO. Then they say, oh, it was a mile-wide UFO. That that can't be a plane. It's got to be something extraterrestrial. Well, no, maybe it was just an optical illusion. So they prematurely dismiss without consideration the optical illusion type of explanations for the witnesses when that's always the simplest explanation isn't ruled out by any of the actual evidence that's being presented. And again, when it's just another report of lights at night, it's just completely uncompelling. One little detail on that report was that there was measured higher background radiation than when when you would expect. And again, assuming that report is accurate, okay, there was more radiation around an Air Force base. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to imagine why there might have been, you know, some unofficially, you know, higher levels of radiation. Maybe they had some weapons there. (laughs) Whatever. Who knows? And plus, even still, let's say that there was a, a spot where the radiation was really, really high. That doesn't prove anything. It proves there's radiation there. But again, you're right, Jay. So it's anomaly hunting because they're saying, look, there's something odd, high, high radiation. We can't explain it with the information we have. Therefore, it's evidence for alien visitation. No, there's no gold standard. It's not. We don't know that radiation levels are a marker of alien spacecraft. There's no real reason to think that it should be. So it's just looking for an anomaly. It's actually not that amazing an anomaly, you know, radiation around a military base. And Mm. then they're just leaping to the conclusion that that equals whatever it is they're interested in. A pretty lame op-ed, you know, it's kind of a silly gambit to make. The government can't protect our airspace and investigate events that could potentially be a, a real or a serious terrorist threat without investigating every everyone who reports Venus as a you know as a UFO because they're not familiar with astronomical objects in the sky. The next news item is uh, another item on the energy crisis front. Uh, the headlines read "Gasoline or Gas from Garbage." Yeah, it seems. Um I came across a lot of articles in the past week about turning garbage into uh, into some sort of fuel. 
It seems like a pipe, a pipe dream, though, doesn't it? You take something mm. uh, like garbage, something abundant and unavoidable, and nobody wants it, right? Who wants garbage? And turning it into something that uh, that everyone's talking about, you know, all the alternative fuel and how to deal with the energy crisis and stuff. Um, a recent uh, New York Times article, um, for example, mentioned that um, 28 small plants using this type of te- conversion technology are, are close to or under construction, and some of these plants are actually already running in test mode. Most of these plants are, are experimenting on converting wood, like stuff like wood chips, garbage, or crop waste into, mo- into motor fuel. Now, conver- converting garbage into energy isn't anything new or particularly exotic. Scientists have talked about it for, for many decades. But when, when oil is, you know, 8 bucks a barrel or $20 a barrel, I mean, why bother? You've got this cheap, abund- you know, abundant dense source of energy right there. But of course, now that, that oil is something like, what, $125, $130 a barrel, everyone's freaking out. And it's actually, and part of me actually likes the fact that, that gas is so expensive because it's really motivating people, I mean, to look for alternative sources of energy like like um, like solar and, uh, and biofuels and other things. Yeah, well, it changes the economic bottom line. It just, it just makes things cost effective that are not cost effective when when oil is trading at forty or even fifty dollars a barrel. When it's trading at one hundred and fifty dollar a barrel, a lot of things become cost effective now just by default. You know. But along with that point of the bottom line is getting so good with these alternative fuels that the government is pushing uh, for this very hard as well. Legislation was passed last year that requires more than eighteen billion gallons of biofuels by two thousand. 22 to come from non-food sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, the Energy Department, Department of Energy, picked six projects that it found most promising and, and offered them like tens of millions of dollars. DuPont, for example, is investing $140 million uh, for over the next few years for a process to convert non-edible parts of corn and sugar cane into ethanol. Uh, GM has invested an undisclosed sum in a company called uh, Cascada of Warrenville, Illinois, Coscada claims to be on the verge of being able to produce ethanol from garbage on a commercial scale. And that's key because a lot of these small startups, maybe they can put up a demonstration where um, the technology looks good, but then, of course, when you scale it up to a commercial scale, it doesn't work the way they, they anticipated it. Now, for this company and, and a couple other ones that uh, that are doing this, a key process for this conversion of garbage into um, into fuel is uh, gasification. And no, Jay, this is different from, from what you're thinking. Sure. Gasification, <laughs> it's, it's like a, gasification is like a partial incineration. Uh, incineration uses a lot of air for, uh, for full combust- combustion with carbon dioxide and water as byproducts. Gasification is kind of like ha- stopping the incineration halfway. It uses a, a limited amount of oxygen, and the byproducts are carbon monoxide and hydrogen, and these these byproducts still have a lot of chemical energy left that can be used. Uh, this mixture is then fed to bacteria to produce ethanol, which is purified and can be blended with fuel and, and other things can be done with it. Um, when, one of the benefits of this process is that you could take any type of carbon waste, plain garbage, tires, biomass, and the, the other key thing that I think was very important is that none of these products are used for, for food. And that's, that way you avoid that whole mess we're seeing now with, with turning corn into biofuel. Corn um, is just a, the wrong way to go. It is. It really but it's is. Not just, yeah. But it's not just um, not using 
crops that are uh, food crops. It's also not using land that could be that's you know could be used for growing food right. crops. So it's that's not an- if you convert over a plot of land from growing corn to growing something else, that's still not helping, uh, just because you're growing something that itself is not food. There was another uh, news item today, actually, along these same lines, that uh, a trial of using miscanthus, which is a giant grass. Yeah, I saw that. You saw that? Um, which So this is now getting to the fact of trying to minimize the use of land. And they say that you can get two and a half times as much ethanol out of the same amount of land as corn. So two and a half times the energy than if you had planted corn. So that's good. Mm. So that means it would lo- you would use that much less of our crop pr- you know producing land in order to produce biofuels. So that you know maybe that might start to make the numbers that up. I'm still dubious about the whole biofuel thing. It just so far it hasn't been adding up but these kind of I think advances and breakthroughs are necessary before it even approaches being cost-effective and land-effective and not you know, have unintended consequences like driving, driving up the cost of food, etc. Well, let's go on to some of your questions and emails. We're just going to do one email this week. Uh, we have a long interview coming up with Banachek. Uh, so just one email. This one is actually a name-not-logical fallacy. It comes from Anders Starmark from Gothenburg, Sweden. That's a great name, by the way. Anders. Anders is a good name. Starmark. Starmark, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He writes, I am an avid follower of House and have heard him say the treatment will confirm the diagnosis. This is apparently known as the diagnosis ex juventibus. Is this an example of post hoc ergo propter hoc reasoning? If a treatment is reasonably specific, the reasoning seems sound, yet it seems suspicious. Where am I going wrong? So House, uh, for those of you who may not know, is a, a television show featuring Hugh Laurie, who plays a cynical, kind of mean-spirited doctor, um, very much fashioned after Sherlock Holmes. He's kind of a jerk, doesn't like people, <laughs> but he's brilliant, and he and has uh, powers of, of clinical deduction that are mythic you know, on the show. And everyone grudgingly sort of likes him because... In the end, he always comes up with the right diagnosis and this flash of brilliance towards the end of the show. What do you guys think about this? So he's saying if you say maybe the diagnosis is X, so I'm going to treat X and see if it gets better. And if, he, if the patient gets better, then the diagnosis was X. I mean, it seems to work pretty damn well on the show. I mean, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that your ass is in a sling if that's where you're at. If your doctor is taking pot shots... <laughs> at you like that I, I would feel like that's not a good way to go um, but, I, mm-hmm. but I would rather have them try something anything than say okay we're stumped you're, you're toast well there is that dictum of first do no harm so you really shouldn't try anything you've got to be reasonably sure that you're not going to make the situation worse sometimes doing nothing is better than doing something Right. But your but what your reaction, Jay, though, is very typical. A, pa- a lot of patients have a hard time understanding that, and they would, out of desperation, rather do anything than nothing. And sometimes, anything can mean, you know, harmful treatments, desperate treatments, just completely wasteful treatments, wasting time, resources, emotion, uh, convenience, their their remaining time and quality of life. People sacrifice a lot for that thread of hope of doing something rather than nothing. Like taking an antibiotic for a viral infection. 
<laughs> it is post hoc ergo propter hoc reasoning. It is flawed reasoning, but it is done um, frequently in medicine because medicine's an applied science, right? It's not just a theoretical science, and we're not trying to make scientifically sound or reliable statements. We're trying to do practically what's best for an individual patient. And often we have to make decisions with limited or imperfect information. And you're right, Jay, it is not a situation we like to be in. It's much more preferable that we can confirm a diagnosis objectively through laboratory markers, very specific clinical findings, etc., and then know exactly what we're doing. But what if someone presents with a disease or a syndrome or a constellation of symptoms, the diagnostic tests are negative or ambiguous, and you, once you've exhausted your diagnostic repertoire, you don't know what they have, or you may know what ballpark you're in, you know what category mm-hmm. disease they have, but you don't know what the specific diagnosis is. Or you've ruled out a bunch of stuff, but there's still a lot of things on the list that there is no way to rule out. Then what do you do? I'd call house. Right. Well, then that is a situation in which it's reasonable to do this kind of a, what we call a therapeutic trial. <laughs> you treat it based upon your best guess, and if the patient improves, that's evidence supporting the diagnosis that you were treating. For example, in, in my own specialty of neurology, this comes up frequently with seizures. Seizures are events. They're episodes, the neurological episodes that people have. It's possible for somebody to be having seizures that are subtle, that are not the full-blown, what we call a generalized or tonic-clonic seizure, where people are shaking on the ground and frothing at the mouth and wetting their pants and biting their tongue, right? So if that happens, every, that's a seizure and there's no question. Um, but some people may have more subtle seizures where they just get these bizarre symptoms. They might, not, they might not lose consciousness. They may just have altered consciousness. We have other ways of figuring out if it's seizures. We could do EEGs. Uh, we could look for underlying causes. But it's not uncommon that patients are having these partial seizures with a negative workup. How do we know? And you've ruled everything else out. And it kind of smells like a seizure, but you can't be completely sure. So we say, okay, well, let's treat it as a seizure, and if they stop, it was probably a seizure. It's not like it, it's not like where you can go back and and see that somebody has had a heart attack in the past. Well, yeah, because a, a perfectly healthy, normal-looking brain, by the technology we have today, can have seizures. Any brain can have a seizure. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to have epilepsy to have a seizure. Um, if you're sleep deprived or have alcohol toxicity or withdrawal or low blood sugar. There's lots of situations in which under stress even a normal brain can have a seizure. And then some brains have very subtle problems. They just have a lower seizure threshold or they may be just a few cells producing abnormal electrical activity way below the resolution of our MRI scans or EEGs. What do you do in a situation like that when you you have to go upon statistical probability or just just your clinical instinct almost and you can't you don't have a definitive diagnosis it then it's reasonable to do the therapeutic trial and then to at the end of which and here's the difference and we're not saying all right i've proven this patient has seizures for example what you're saying is the patient stopped having these episodes on this drug yeah that that supports the possibility that they're seizures and it's reasonable to continue treatment with that drug and then over based time upon, you, based upon the patient's apparent response to the mm-hmm. drug. And and over time you can actually get to to decent evidence from that route, correct? Well, you you could you, you could say just what I did and the 
the greater the correlation, the greater your confidence in the diagnosis. But so, for example, if, the, if then you then wean the patient off the anti-seizure medication and they start having the episodes back, and then you start them on the drug again and they go away again, say, so, okay, there's a strong correlation between the drug and the apparent effect. So the, the, the stronger the correlation, the more likely it is that the patient has seizures. But what I teach my students and residents is that when the diagnosis is based upon an apparent response to treatment, there's always that question, mental question mark next to the diagnosis. Yeah. And this is in the broader context of a di- making a diagnosis is not a black or white thing. It's important in, in, as patients, as of course, as clinicians, as physicians to understand that there's levels of confidence in the diagnoses that we make. There's error bars that we have to always attach to them. And there's different lines of evidence that we use to say that a diagnosis is probably present or probably not present. And response to treatment is just one of those lines of evidence. It's legitimate, but it's, it's the sort of the lazy clinician or the sloppy thinker that says, oh, the patient stopped having the symptoms when I gave him the treatment, therefore this is the diagnosis. And I, it's ironclad, unquestionable, and I can now proceed from that premise without ever considering that maybe it was a coincidence or that there's something else going on. You always have to consider the uncertainty of the diagnosis and the fact that it could just be uh, a coincidence or, or again, this, a post hoc reasoning that, that led you to that conclusion. All right, so Steve, let's do this. Ready? Patients, a patient walks into your office. Yep. Oh, I, I got a tingler. Oh, <laughs> God. I'm very dizzy. And oh, I'm so sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, unfortunately, I get those patients all the time. Oh, my God. Yeah. You, you do for real? Doctor, <laughs> no, Steve, these are the patients you get all the time. Doctor, the dog ate my medicine that you prescribed to me. Can you prescribe me some more? Yeah. Right. <laughs> wow. That strangely never happens to uh, non-addictive medication. Ever. <laughs> you ever almost laugh? Lost ever, all my narcotics. You ever almost laugh because someone is just like, oh boy, this is crazy. No, I have a, I have an implacable game face when I'm with a patient. Oh God. <laughs> I couldn't, I could never be a doctor. I would be, I'd be like <laughs> laughing if they, if they did anything funny, I'd start laughing right in their face. <laughs> You're right, Jay, you could never be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you you have to develop your bedside manner, right? It's all it's that's part of the being a professional is that you're just in a different mode. You know, you're just not responding to the situation like like you would a friend or a casual situation. You're treating that encounter differently. So you just you know you turn off lots of things in the in the physician patient yep. encounter, right? Anyway, very interesting question, and it, it ultimately comes down to. Being a good skeptical clinician, a skeptical doctor, and I think that being a skeptic has definitely helped me be a better diagnostician and avoiding all the pitfalls that doctors make just like everybody else, all of those logical and reasoning pitfalls. And the settling prematurely on a diagnosis that hasn't been completely confirmed is one of the biggest mistakes that doctors make, actually. But anyway, let's go on to our interview. Hey, we are sitting here now with Master Mentalist Banachek. Well, thank you. 
Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's really my pleasure. We're all, we're all big Good fans. Uh, we caught your show last year at TAM 5, and it was absolutely amazing. Well, I mean, it really you. was more impressive than anything I've seen in the, the mentalism field, fake or majority. That's what I was about to say. It's better yeah. than in the every cold reader I think that's, I've ever yeah, seen. That's exactly right. kind of you to say. I, I appreciate that. Thank you both. All of you. <laughs> now, the, the question that always comes up for us, for us as skeptics is um, when mentalists are doing their act, you probably know what you see, what's coming. So... Clearly, we understand that there has to be deception. That's part of the, mm -hmm. the presentation. That's uh, the show. That's why it's a show, right? You, if you just showed us exactly what you were doing, it wouldn't be that interesting. It wouldn't right. be much of a show. So the mentalists always have that, um, that dilemma, if you will, about how much to reveal to the audience, how much deception to put in there. And you have been um, certainly prominent as a mentalist in saying that, you know what, we can't pretend to be psychic. That's not our job. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because in the early days, mentalism was simply everybody saying they were psychic. They got up on stage, hey, I have these powers. It's amazing. And they, you know, they always claim to have powers. You had acts that were really good that used that. And then you had acts that weren't so good but were much better because they used that because people walked in with a belief system. And they, they couldn't get away with the trickery unless they had people believing. So they didn't want to tell people it's an illusion that it's magic or it's these other abilities that I have. They had to say that it was psychic. They had to have people believe in it to get away with it. You know, I was talking earlier to somebody and I mentioned about Yuri Gala. You know, I remember the first time I saw Gala, I was always told that he was genuine, that he was real. And then when I saw him on stage, it was like, wow, that was very blatant. You know, mm -hmm. I could see how he was doing all these things and I was kind of like, a little bit shocked by it, you know, and I'm looking around at the rest of the crowd and going, don't they see this? And then I realized that he's so charming mm -hmm. that they just didn't care. You know, they wanted to believe, you know, and, and they wanted to believe because here's this guy that's just so charming, you know, and, 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 and just, you know, the guy that you'd want to know, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, they wanted to believe that there was these unusual abilities. So it really didn't matter in that aspect. So quite often, mentalists who really loudly hollow that, um, you know, you can't say that it's not psychic are the ones aren't that good, you know. Mm -hmm. and I can't always say that because there were some really good mentalists that still use that. They still fall into that. I was one of the very first um, that came out and said, look, there's another way to present this. You know, you can talk about using your five known senses to create the illusion of a sixth mm -hmm. sense. That phrase isn't original with me. It came from a friend of mine by the name of Ned Rutledge, who was also a mentalist. But I really pushed it in my books. And I talked about using nonverbal verbal. Mm -hmm. My first book on mentalism was really about the verbal techniques that we use and the nonverbal techniques, how you can play something to try to get somebody to select that. It increases your odds. It's not 100%, but it does increase your odds. The way you say something, if you say it a little bit louder than anything else you're saying, or a little bit softer than anything else you're saying, you can get people to choose things. And there's a very large portion of my show where I'm using psychology all the way through mm -hmm. my show. I'm using nonverb. It might be the way that I stand. It might be the way that I speak to them. I'm not always relying upon that to get away with what I'm doing, mm -hmm. but I'm increasing my odds because I've got a magic backup as a result. Sometimes in magic, you have multiple ways of doing something, and the outcome might be different. The audience doesn't know that, but the outcome is going to be different. But I know that if I've got five items on the table and they pick up the one item that matches my prediction right off the bat, that's strong, that's killer. It's like, how the hell did he know he was going to choose that? And I can increase my odds of them selecting that item by this way that I things say, I'm sorry, the things that I say, where I stand mm -hmm. from the object, and, and, and just the way that I look at the person, you know, and sometimes as I mention the objects or don't mention objects, I can get them to choose a specific object. It's not going to be 100%. So I have outs if they choose the other, but the outs are a little bit weaker. They're still strong to the audience, but not as strong as the first outcome now, that I want. Increasing your odds is interesting. Have, is this a skill you've honed? Is, it that, is that pure experience, or have you read up on, say, psychology and to help augment yeah. that? Uh, 
you know, people ability? people always talk about you know how I do what I do, you know, and and, and is it a natural ability or is it an ability that you learn, you know? And in our business, we always like to say that a child of three can do what we do with twenty three years experience, and that's probably absolutely true. They can. But for me, it was instinctive. The first time that I read the amazing Randy's book, The Truth About Yuri Geller, and he talked about Geller being a, a fake and a fraud, I read that book. It was the first time I came in contact with that type of thinking. I mean, I had lived in South Africa with radio. I'd never saw Geller on TV. I heard that you actually saw the metal bending. So in my mind, you saw the metal bending. So I came up with my own methods, which weren't in Randy, Randy's book. And uh, I came up with my own methods of bending. And it was always where you have to see the fork bending. You have to see you know, it break. You have to see the time moving. You have to see it visually. And then when I saw Gala, it was like, wow. You know, the only time you saw that was when he bent a key, usually with the forks and that back in those days, the early days. It was, you know, the fork's not bent, put your hand over it and take your hand away and it's bent kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it was never you actually saw it bending. Mm -hmm. So it was this thing of actually seeing in my mind what something should be and causing it to be that. My forte is inventing things, which I know I went a long way to answer your question. I haven't answered it yet. I am getting there, I think. I'm patient. Um, yeah. And um, so, it, so it comes back to it was instinctive for me. It's like some people sit down and play the piano and, you know, just by ear. They just sit down. They just play it. You know, they've never touched the piano key in their life and they can play it. Other people, they can take lessons. They can take 23 years of lessons. They still sound like terrible, like just mm -hmm. monkeys pounding on a piano, you know. Um, so, yeah, for me, it was instinctive. You know, I didn't learn from anybody else. And I, I'm one of the rare mentalists that really started out in mentalism, most mentalists start out doing magic, and then they move over into mentalism, which is considered sort of the grown-up form of, mm. of magic, you know, and there, there's a whole thing out there where they say, yeah, you can make more money doing mentalism than you can doing magic. I think when you're at the top tier, you probably make more money like a Copperfield or a, um, a Chris Angel or Doug Henning that doing illusions, big illusions. Mm -hmm. But in the mainstream magic world, yeah, you do tend to get a little bit more respect, and you do tend to get paid a little bit more doing the mentalism. I answered your question, yes? Good. So, do, you, uh, do you worry at all about psychology t sort of taking the place as that shortcut for mentalists, mentalists saying they're psychic? Now you look at Darren Brown, yeah. like that. You know, it, they yeah. seem to be using psychology to a paranormal degree. Well, almost. you have to be very careful with that because a lie is a lie is a lie. And that's where my good friend Darren Brown got in trouble. And I saw it coming and I was telling people, you know what? He's going to get a backlash on this because he, in the beginning, he alluded that everything he did was NLP. Mm -hmm. right. He got to a point where he really had to go 360 and embrace his magic background and to, to fix that because mm -hmm. there was this big gap and he, there was a reporter that came out that really started going, look, it's not NLP, it's this and this. Because the problem for our listeners, that's neurolinguistic programming. That's which exactly, is yeah, like yeah. a form of psychology where you can manipulate people yeah. into doing what you want. There's them to a do. lot of misunderstandings about NLP and NLP is most people know it, neurolinguistic programming. Yeah, I'm tongue tied today. Um, it's much easier to say NLP. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, as it stands, there's there's a lot of books out there that are just total rubbish, total crap. You know mm -hmm. that. Um, so so it's one of these things. There are some good things in NLP if you take a look at it. Um, but you have to be at a, it's so hard to weed out the truth from the things that just aren't true, you know, and, and, and that was a problem with Darren, you know, coming in and saying, you know, using tricks and things like that. But he was using a lot of psychology, what he did. Darren, use, Darren uses a lot of psychology to where magicians go, oh, he must be using stooges, and he's not, you know, it's really just how he presented it and how he brought it about. Um, but as I said, he had to do a 360 degree turn where he finally had to embrace his magic background. And so you have to be careful with that. When I tell people, I take a, my five notes, this is to create 
in the illusion of a six, I give them examples as well. And um, I tell them I'm using verbal communication, nonverbal communication. I put emphasis on the magic. I say I'm using magic because everything I do has a backbone of magic in it, you know. Well, not everything. There's one or two effects that rely purely on psychology in my show, you know, mm -hmm. purely on psychology, nothing else. And there's some moments that rely purely on psychology that you'll either see them or you won't see them. You either know there's an effect if I want you to know it, or if it doesn't work, you have no clue that it didn't work. Absolutely mm -hmm. no clue whatsoever. But yeah, the emphasis on magic, and then I say perceptual manipulation, because I've got no way within the psychology or any of that other stuff to explain the metal bending, you know, other than maybe magic, you know, but it's sleight of hand, perceptual manipulation, making you think the fork's bending up as you see it, you know, but it's really not doing that. Right. So, so one of the deceptions that you're employing is that you're cherry picking the results that are positive, and then... Then you reveal that that was the trick you were going for all the time. It's one area sometimes. Yeah. I, I rarely use that in my show. I have mm -hmm. a very set show, but I have moments, moments of astonishment. Uh, I have a lot of little moments in my show that build up to a bigger moment. You know, I, I do a thing. I'll give you an example. I do a thing uh, in my show that's a book test, and it's, it's you know, there's a lot of book tests out there. I do my own. But I have somebody think of a word. Now, I can reveal that word right away, you know, if I wanted to. I can say your word is house. Or, and you can try this at home right now, you know, I can tell you to mix all the letters up in your word and think of any letter in your word. Yeah, I got two letters, almost like you change. You're thinking of an S. No. no. Okay. No, most people would have gone with the S, but I have another out right there because I can say, oh, you didn't think of the S, but I got another letter. I'm, I'm, there's an O in your word, isn't there? Yes. Mm -hmm. And there's an H in your word, a U, and S, E. So you never know that that's exactly what I was going for at right. that moment. But if I hit the S, it's an astonishing moment. Mm. The fact is, I still got the, I have the word yeah. in the very end to come back with and throw it at you. Right. That's the main effect. But I've got all these other little moments going leading uh -huh. all the way up to that. Right. That really don't, it's nothing if they don't hit, but it makes the whole effect so much stronger if they do hit. Sure mm -hmm. does. Yeah. yeah. So it's a win-win. You basically organize it's, it's, it's win -win so for me. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's what my books on, uh, my mentalism books, which if you're a mentalist, you'll know where to get them. If you're not, it's a little bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what my books are, my, my psychological subtlety books are all about. It's all about those win-win situations, you know. And then uh, McDonnell Douglas gave half a million dollars to Washington University to study PKMB, which is psychokinetic metal bending. I wrote them a letter and said I can bend metal, you know. They were really looking for young kids, you know. I was like almost in my 20s at that time when I wrote the letter. But uh, they weren't finding too many young kids, go figure. And uh, they accepted me. And then Randy called me up and told me about this guy at Washington University. And I said, uh, think of his name, Peter Phillips. He said, yeah, you know about it already? He said, yeah, I already sent him a letter. And I just got accepted. I was about to call you and tell you, you know. <laughs> and Randy told me about another kid that was accepted by the name of Mike Edwards. And uh, Mike was a brilliant escape artist um, and, and did some magic at the time, had a magic background. Uh, but only knew one way how to bend a key at that time. That's all he knew, how to bend a key. And so he called Randy. What am I going to do? I've been accepted, you know. And Randy told him to go ahead and keep playing the part. And I asked him, I said, I said to Randy, I said, can I trust Mike Edwards? He said, I don't know much about him. He says, you know, other than he called me and he seems to be, you know, a genuine guy and very concerned. And um, he said, just play it by ear. And as soon as I met Mike at the airport, you know, we knew we were going to hit it off right away. You know, we got to uh, drive Peter Popoff. Uh, Peter Popoff, that's the evangelist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right it's not just me getting in. Yeah, we got, to drive, uh, we got to drive Peter Phillips's car. And uh, Mike drove the car, and I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and Peter Phillips was in the rental car, and because neither one of us had a license with him, he had to get the rental car to drive it out first, and then we got it later. But we're driving, and I looked in the glove compartment, and I, I see some keys in there, so I start bending those keys, you know, and I bend them up, throw them back in the glove compartment. I look in the back seat. I was just destroying everything. It's terrible now that I think about it. <laughs> I look in the back seat, and there's a briefcase, and I go, hmm, and I 
slip it over the front, you know, so he couldn't see from the car behind. I try to open it, it won't open. So it's like, ah, so I managed to get it open anyway, using secret means. Um, and there's a whole bunch of silverware in there. So I bent up all the silverware, you know. I figured, you know, he's a, he, he's a kleptomaniac. Well, this stuff is for the tests, you know. Yeah. So I bent it all up, closed it, put it back in the back seat. Then I started to reach over for one of the keys in the ignition. And Mike said, I think you've done enough damage, <laughs> you know. So, but, but, you know, it was these little spontaneous PK things that really convinced the scientists at the time that what we were doing were genuine. Because sometimes we would sit in a room for hours, maybe an entire day, and nothing would happen, especially in the, the early days, because we were so afraid there might be a, a one-way mirror mm -hmm. or, or some secret device videotaping us and watching us the entire time. And it wasn't until later that we realized they weren't. So the minute bends in the very early stages became huge bends. I mean, in the early days, it was things like they would have tags on the silverware um, that were numbered, you know, and, and I would say, can I take this tag off, you know, and I'd say, yeah, and I'd put it down, you know, I'd try to concentrate, and I'd put it down, and then I'd pick up another fork, can I take this, yeah, and I'd concentrate, then I'd put the wrong tag on this fork and the wrong tag on that fork, and then half an hour, 45 minutes later, I'd ask them to measure that fork, and of course, it had changed, just minutely, by millimeters, but it had changed, you know, so to them, that was amazing, and later on, when we got more confident and realized they weren't, they realized they weren't trying to trick us or catch us out, we were able to make much, much bigger bends, but the spontaneous bending things were the things that convinced people. Even the students at Washington University at one point, they had hidden keys and forks and, and coins and everything underneath the video equipment. And um, I saw that at one point and realized, okay, that must be what it's for. So I bent it all up and it convinced some of them that what we, even though they came in skeptically, they thought there's no way we could have known those articles were in there, that they had hidden them. And it was just by pure luck that I happened to see it. And they also didn't realize that I went in when they were out of the room. So they thought I had never entered that room as well. So a couple of the students were convinced. Mm -hmm. As well. Later on, they took the Mac lab, they moved it elsewhere. So it became pretty much like 180 hours. You know, it wasn't every single day. You know, it was holidays and mm -hmm. things like that. People think I made money doing this, and I really didn't. I lost money because I would have to take time off the hospital. Um, I would have to take holidays and stuff and go out there. And we get, got a little bit of a podium, but very, very little just to cover some very minor expenses. We were able to convince them we were genuine for four years in a row. Um, wow. And then after those four years, we basically came out and said that everything we had done up to that point was an illusion to show them if they went in with a pro-biased opinion, they wouldn't use proper scientific protocol. Mm -hmm. Was it hard to do the reveal? Did you feel guilty? Yeah, you know, I've got to tell you, I want to get back to that. Can we come back to that question? Absolutely. Because I want to finish this piece because that's very, very important, I think, um, because it did become that way because we didn't know what we were getting into mm -hmm. when we were young kids. But with the scientists uh, – you know, they didn't want to believe when we came out and said that it wasn't genuine. They didn't want to believe that it was not genuine. They would sit by the phone and wait for us to call them because all the reporters were calling and wait till we actually spoke with them, you know. I mean, we had a couple of things. We had a couple of rules. There were a few rules when we went in there, you know, when we talked to Randy. And one of the rules was if they ever asked us if we were magicians, we had to say yes and that we were working for Randy. You know, and, and they never they never asked us that. They came close one time. In fact, after the whole reveal, a spokesman from nowhere came out from McDonald Douglas, who was never around at any time, and said, "Well, they did ask you guys that." And we said, "What?" And it turned out what happened was this: Randy was at a convention one time, and he leaked two stories. And one of them was a true story, and one of them was a fake story. One of the stories was that the amazing Randy was working with us to fool the scientists. The other story that he leaked was that those particular scientists we were working with were working with us to try to fool all the other scientists. So what happened was we came back after they'd been at this parapsychological convention, and they got this information and said, you know what, you're not going to believe the rumors we heard here. And they start to tell us, they say, we heard this one rumor that um, you guys were working with the amazing Randy to try to fool us. And we thought, okay, the gig's up. 
But they weren't asking it. They were telling it. They started laughing. And they said, yeah, and even more ridiculous, they thought we, the scientists, were working with Randy. Yeah. So it was almost like they were telling us and laughing about this, which right. they did with a few different things. I mean, one of the things that Randy would always do is after an experiment, we would talk to him on the phone and would say, look, you know, we're doing this thing with a bell jar. And underneath the bell jar, there's a rotor. You know, they asked me if I could move it to the right, and I would concentrate, and it finally moved to the right. You know, and then they would ask me if I could move it to the left to make sure it wasn't air currents, and I had it moving to the left. And we would tell Randy about this. And there's another story with that, which is interesting, because Mike, I would always pretty much be the one that invented my forte, going back to a question earlier, was being able to think up things, being able to invent things on the spot, you know, and I was very good at that. And so Mike would kick me under the table and say, you know, hey, you want to go get a drink? And that was our cue for us to talk, you know. And, no, 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 I don't get a Coke, you know. Kick me real hard. No, come on, I'm thirsty. And I was like, okay, I would go back there. <laughs> How'd you do it, he'd say. And I, I'd say, you know what, after sitting here for all these hours, I finally found out I'm psychic. <laughs> and he'd get so pissed off at me, he'd say, no, tell me. And so I would tell him he'd go back in the room and they'd do the same things. And they never really quite caught on that Mike would do, was doing these things after I was doing them. <laughs> Maybe not and a lot of times when we left the room. But more importantly, what they didn't catch on was that Randy would write them these letters. And after we did something maybe with the bell jaw, he would write them a letter saying, if you ever do an experiment with a bell jaw where you're trying to make something move under it, you might want to take this precaution, this precaution. And they never really caught on to how the hell did Randy know what experiments they were doing. <laughs> and they never did the uh, precautions he was yeah. You know, and, and oh, they sent, uh, Randy sent them 11 caveats from day one he sent them to mm. them. Things like don't let them uh, touch the objects, you know, unless you really have to and it's part of the experiment. Don't let them use more than one object at a time. Um, don't let more than one subject work at a time, you know. And obviously they broke every one of those rules. They showed us the list and they said there's no way you could do this because you guys wouldn't be comfortable working yeah. under those yeah, conditions. Can't make you uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean a perfect example is where I was taking one fork, taking the tag off another fork, you know, yeah. and sometimes I'll just lean across the table on a fork as I'm picking another one up and then I'd reveal the first one mm. like hours later. Yeah. You know, so they could never go back on the videotape and really see it unless they sat through all that footage, yeah. which they were never ever gonna do. They even moved the experiments into somebody's living room for a little while, which gave us so much more distraction. I mean yeah. there was a point yeah. um there was a, a point where there was an outside scientist that asked me uh, uh, he said, you know, I, I, I met a lady who could take pictures of UFOs in the air, and we would give her a camera, and she would take these pictures, and you couldn't see them on the film until it was actually developed. And then when it was developed, you'd see these things in the air that you couldn't see with the naked eye. You know, there was these UFOs. Can you do that? And I was young and stupid. I didn't have – there was no reason for me to worry about failure because if I failed, it didn't matter. You know, I could fail all the time. Now when I'm on stage, I can't fail. I'm getting paid to be right and do things, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I can fail in a minor manner, but not a major manner. But back then, didn't care less. So I said, yeah, I can do that, you know, and he handed me the camera, and I took pictures of the parking lot and everything else. He had the film developed back then, and uh, there was his vacation pictures, you know. Then there was him giving me the camera in the parking lot. There was me taking pictures of the sky and the parking lot and everything else. But in the picture, there was a picture of a woman's torso, thigh, nipple. Um, there was uh, there was a woman giving birth to a baby. There was all these wonderful images in this picture, you know. And he was like so fascinated by it and amazed by it. Now he was not with the Mac Lab, okay. And I've got to give the Mac Lab Peter Phillips some credit on this. Um, uh, so so what I had actually done was when he handed me the camera, I just spat on the camera lens, and as it dried up, it made all these images. Now he's a Freudian psychologist, so he put all these images in there. And what was really interesting is he would show me, look, no, no, look, look right there. You see it? There's a woman's nipple. And I'd go, oh, yeah, there is. And I would actually see it because <laughs> it, these are these images. It's like yeah, looking at yeah. clouds and making shapes and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. That's right. So they are really in there. And he wrote a book about me. Uh, it's like 52 pages for the, for the Journal of Psychosomatic Dentistry and Medicine. It's an amazing read because everything was accredited to me. And this is how some these fringe people on the sides go but you know they're the ones that always make it in the media you know you yeah, always say he was right. always in the National Enquirer he was always in other papers you know it wasn't the ones doing serious study mm -hmm. and serious work it was always these ones with these 
outrageous things. You know, he had a jaw with um, the same guy. He had a, a jaw with uh, silverware in it that he had above his radiator. And uh, when I was back in Washington, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh, he I was supposed to concentrate it. I think it was like 6 or 7 o'clock at night. Let's say it was 6 o'clock at night every night. And I never did. But uh, one day he called me up and said, you did it, you did it. And I said, I did what? He said, you know that jaw you concentrate every night? And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, you did it, you know. I said, what? They bent? He said, well, they didn't quite bend. He said, what happened was they're sitting above the radiator, and the radiator broke, and it's leaking all across the floor. Oh, there you go. So he gave me credit for the radiator. You know, Um, you know, people, when I would bend their keys, would leave, and maybe their their lock wouldn't work or something like that. That got accredited. All these wonderful things. And he wrote this whole book of it. It really sounds pretty amazing if you really go, my God, you know. And I look at it, I go, how the hell did I do some of these things, you know. But I realized that I didn't do some of those things. There was a point where um, there's a row of pictures and a balloon, oh, this is great, because he used to take these uh, these little plastic containers, and he had little hairs on them, and he had little pieces of paper on them and everything else. And inside, there'd be like things like flash cubes, and there'd be silverware and keys and business cards and all kinds of stuff. And they'd be all around my bed. Like, I couldn't get out of bed. All over my bed at this place, you know. So we'd go to bed. I'd sit there, and I'd sit up all freaking night. And I'd look at these things, work them open, and I would bend things. I'd make the flash cube go off, and I'd char the paper and do all this. And then I'd seal it carefully again. And then I would take, like, five of those and put them underneath the bed and all the other ones out in the front. And I waited, and in the morning, sure enough, he came down, and uh, he had done it the day before, too. He went on. He came, looked at me, you know, kind of weird, some creepy looking over you. But anyway, I was sleeping. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't creepy, you know. It wasn't anything like that. But anyway, he, uh, he would leave, go get a newspaper, and I knew he was going to be gone for about five minutes because he was the day before. I hoped he was going to be gone about five minutes. It didn't take me that long, but I took all the ones under the bed that I had fixed, put them out front, put the ones in the front underneath, and I went like I was going back to sleep. He came back and looking at me again, looking, and then all of a sudden he said, oh, my God, you know, wake up. Wake up! You know, you did it! You did it! And all this stuff was bent in the containers and everything else. And, you know, he swore that, you know, the micro and the macro things that he had on this were not tampered with in any way, you know. Um, so, yeah, again, he was a little bit more on the fringe side. And a minute ago, I said, I've got to give credit to Peter Phillips, who was with the Mac Lab. When he did see the video of the woman's torso, nuclear, and thigh, he did say, look, like a blob of water on the lens, you know, mm-hmm. and the other guys, no, 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 but that's not what's important. Look what's in the, the blob, yeah. you know, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so I've got to give mm-hmm. Peter Phillips that, which brings me back to uh, a, a question that one of you asked earlier, um, was, you know, how, was it hard for us in the very end to reveal the Alpha Project as a hoax? And it was, because... These scientists became our friends. Going mm-hmm. in as kids, we didn't realize they would. You know, they're, they're good, good people. My God, some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life, you know. And, they, t- you know, we ate with them. Um, we slept in their homes, you know. They became our friends, you know. We shared experiences with these people. And we didn't think it was going to be that difficult for us. We didn't realize how close we become to these people. We just kind of saw them as the enemy. Yeah. And, you know, and as they're, we're their enemy, sort of, you know. And it's not like that at all. These are good people, um, just a little bit misguided and maybe outside an area of expertise. And a lot of people say, is it right to fool people in the name of science? And in most instances, it isn't. In this particular case, this science has come about because people are fooling people. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit different, I think. And even back in those days, there were a couple of scientists said that you know we could never be fooled by anybody doing that. And if you think you can, send somebody in the laboratory. So it was right for us to do that, to, to have the Alpha Project happen, to go in and try to fool the people. There was even a point uh, where there was a BBC producer who called Randy up, and he really believed in psychic phenomena. He said, Randy, what would it take for me to get something on video that even you would believe in? 
what would it take? And Randy laid out all the rules for him, you know, pretty much the 11 caveats that he had given the scientists in the beginning uh, at the Mac Lab. So we got with him, and it was myself, Mike Edwards, and this was a conference where I first saw Yuri Gala, by the way, and uh, there was uh, Masawaki Kyoto from Japan, and Masawaki Kyoto had a way for twisting spoons, and I saw Masawaki take a spoon under the table one time, stick it in his shoe, and give it a twist. I invented another way for twisting spoons much later um, that's much easier, simpler, and people have no clue how you're doing it. Uh, you can do it with very tough spoons. Anyway, but that's a little off topic, sort of, um, because we sat there all day with these scientists. We went to lunch, and they gave – nothing happened on film, nothing, I mean, because we couldn't get away with anything, okay? And then the, sci- the, the, the guy, uh, the producer, gave us some watches, electronic watches, and uh, I stuck mine in a sandwich at lunch and microwaved it so the numbers were gibberish, you know, and he was pretty amazed by that, you know, but it, it, he didn't have it on film, so it was – you know, he knew he wouldn't. It was just something to play with while we were at lunch, uh, and Mike did the same thing with his. In fact, I think that was Mike's idea was to put it in the sandwich, so I was a little worried my sandwich was going to be full of plastic, but I did do it. <laughs> So we get back, and we continue shooting. The very end of the day, they turn the cameras off. Nothing. Disappointment. Masawaki Kyoto then twists a spoon. And it's an amazing thing if you see it happen. And the producer lost it. I mean, completely had a complete nervous breakdown. And when I say nervous breakdown, I'm talking about major nervous breakdown. Because he didn't get it on film? This is how bad it was. He ejaculated all over his pants, and he <gasps> called it a demonic ejaculation. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? He started hollering and yelling about Randy, and it's his fault that he couldn't get this on because of skeptic negativity. Um, I had to spend the night, which wasn't bad because she was good looking at the time. I hope my wife doesn't hear this now. But um, I had to spend the night with, the, with I don't want to say her name, but I had to spend the night in her room. Um, and it was, you know, because he kept calling her room every five minutes. That was, I mean, it wasn't what you think. It was more protection. She was scared, you know. Yeah. She was his assistant, and she kept, he kept calling her every five minutes, ranting and raving about Randy and how he was the devil, you oh know. And it was at that oh, moment, boy. Mike and I as kids realized, man, this stuff is powerful. And we were kind of scared by this and the mm-hmm. power that we had. And we said to Randy, you know, we really want to expose this anymore. You know, we already are going to hurt people that we care about. You know, it's just, we just don't feel right about this anymore. And Randy talked to us. He said, look, and it's going to be less than a month. Magical miracles coming out. We can make the most of this at that point. You've got this far. Just stick with it, guys, you know. And we did. And I'm glad that we did at that point. I wanted to ask you a quick question sure. okay. um, just about um, Phenomenon. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I, we talked about that back when it first was coming out. Right. And we were all kind of worried about it sure, at yeah, first. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't worried then, about it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I saw your name attached to yeah. it. I was, I was a At that producer. point, I yeah. was like... Well, thank you. Very relieved. So how much you skepticism know, I, did you inject There in was... That? Well... You know, with with Chris Angel, I, I've I've injected the skepticism from day one because you have to take a look at his persona. What was it going to be? You know, and and he pretty much does all that himself. But one of the things I was adamant about when I came to work on that particular show, not Phenomenon, but on on Mind Freak, was you know if you're going to be promoting that you're you know, and David Blaine did it a little bit in the beginning, you know, and had to change. If you're going to start promoting yourself as a psychic or genuine, I can't have anything to do with this. I just can't do it because I built a reputation elsewhere. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wasn't that kind of person, didn't do that, and, and really went hard in the other direction on phenomenon, actually. Um, but I wasn't there because of him, and I wasn't there because of, um, of Yuri Gala. You know, it was neither one of those. I wasn't worried about that. I did have a conversation with Yuri at one point, um, or Hurry, depending how you want to pronounce it. I guess it depends what country you're in, right? <laughs> uh, but anyway, I did have a conversation with him, sit down conversation, because I knew I was going to have to work with him closely at some point, you know, and, and I'm sure Randy trusted me 100% to be on that show. People say, well, your relationship with Randy wasn't a conflict of interest. No, not at all to me at least, you know. I sat down with him. I said, look, if you're going to claim on the show that you're genuine, I'm going to have a problem with that. I can't work with you at all, mm-hmm. you know. Don't do that with me and we can have conversations, you know. So we, we had some interesting conversations. Um, 
you know, there was one point where he started to say, yeah, but you know, I, I found oil. I said, Yuri, don't go <laughs> there. Oh, my God. Do not go there. Wow. You know, he went, okay, okay. You know, this reminds said, me of that scene in The Godfather at the, yeah. Yeah. where don't. the guy goes, look, just don't lie to me. Right. Yeah. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Don't yeah. insult me. <laughs> that was basically what it was. Yeah. You know, it, it was that thing, you know. So we worked together, you know. Um, and we even went to dinner at one point. Um, a friend of mine, Steve Valentine from Crossing Jordan, also a fantastic magician. And we were up there, and Uri was there, and he showed up with Shippy and Hannah. And we went to Yashimiro's, I think it is, up above Magic Castle. And um, Gallo's, you know, being really, really charming, you know, which he's very, very good at. Uh, we're sitting there. It's kind of interesting to watch him work, you know. It's just really, he's an interesting character, you know, mm-hmm. very interesting. Um, so I'm sitting there watching this, and Steve's taking it all in, you know. And then all of a sudden, Shippy starts handing Uri these permanent markers. And Uri picks up one of these china plates and starts drawing this beautiful picture for me, you know, to Banachek and Heidi, you know, my wife. I'm looking at this. I'm like, well, thank you very much, you know, and I'm thinking, shit. It's not enough that he destroys the silverware. Now he's destroying the plates. <laughs> and, you know, I love having this because it's going to be great on my wall mm-hmm. because yeah. of my history. You the know? irony is brilliant. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's kind of like Brandy having him sign his uh, book, Truth of right. Yellow, yeah. back when. Um, right. So I'm holding this and I'm going, but now I've got to steal this damn plate out of this restaurant and not get caught. Mm-hmm. So he's put me in this awkward situation where I don't think he realizes he's doing it because he's generally just trying to be nice, you know, yeah. Yeah. something. So, um, which is part of his mode of operation. You're you lucky know? he didn't put the drawing on drapes. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely, absolutely. It's funny that you so, say charming and I think sleazy. I don't think I've um, ever. I tell you, yeah, you know what? You can say that, but I got to tell you, um, you know, it's all on perception. If you understand maybe what he's doing underneath it all, you might say sleazy, yeah. but. The way you, you get away with that is by being charming, by keep getting people to like you, by showing interest. You know, um, you know, you take a look at Dale Carnegie's, you know, how to influence right. friends and people. You can take a look at that and go, well, that's sleazy, you know, using these little tricks to get people like you rather than genuinely liking you. Mm. But you know what? If that becomes part of your lifestyle, it does become genuine to a point. Yet there may be a reason why he is doing these things. But the bottom line, he is charming. Yeah. You know, otherwise people would not oh, yeah. fall for that. Right. They wouldn't listen to it and they wouldn't defend him. You know, if they saw him as a sleazy human being, you know, then they would go a- after him for that. So that doesn't serve him any purpose by coming across that way. But we I know, know you know use guys. your powers for good. You know what I mean? If we're going to yeah, get yeah, cut yeah. right down to it. He, he's well, definitely a for-profit organization. No, no, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not talking about that. I'm just talking about... When you're in his presence, he's yeah. got charisma. Right. You know? yeah, I mean, no that, that's, no not, that's not saying no a whole lot. And I know some people will crucify me for this, but, um, you know, Hitler had charisma. You yeah. know, I yeah. mean, he was able to take over yeah. a whole nation. I mean, that, that doesn't mean that charisma is a good thing. Yeah. And I'm not comparing Uri to, 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 to Hitler in no way whatsoever. I, mean, yeah, I would never do that because that's completely, you're talking, you know, I mean, that's. You're not No, they're just so different. But, right. but my point is, charisma and, and, and charming doesn't always equate to being. A good human being, sure. it doesn't equate to being always a bad human being, you know. I've had friends that have, have come to me, and, um, you know, I've got some friends that actually are readers and stuff like that, and I have, I have some problems with that, you know, and they know I do. But they, they, they support people like John Edward. And mm-hmm. uh, I say, no, he's scum of the earth. Well, how can you say that he's scum? I said, because he is. Oh, let me explain. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a story. I said, I had a friend. My wife had a friend as well. Um, they were, well. I guess she was a friend of both of us because we were married. But anyway, she had a son who died, and he died when he was 10 years old, died of cancer. And she had a longing in her heart. She had a hole that she wanted to fill. So she went to a medium, and when she got and saw the medium, uh, the medium convinced that she could talk to her dead son. Mm. So all of a sudden, she was filling this, this void that she had with 
basic BS, you know. And uh, she stopped talking to her husband because she was so caught up in talking to her dead son. She stopped talking to her, her two daughters. And basically, she had no communication with them. It was constantly dealing with this and almost ended up in a divorce. What had happened was this meeting, as medium had basically taken the natural grieving process and put a stop to it. Mm. You know, completely put a stop to that. And that's the danger of these kind of things. You know, yeah. death is a part of life and you have to accept it. I mean, it's cruel, you know, in some ways, but it is part of what we, you know, what it is. It is what it is. It's part of life. And you have to learn to move on and work within the living and not stay stalled in the dead. You know, people say, well, he makes them feel good, you know. Well, you know what? I can give crack to a freaking chunky. It makes him feel good. But is it good for him? Am I doing the right thing by giving it to him because he wants it? No, I'm not. And I'm not going to do the right thing by telling everybody else that John Edward is real when I know damn well that he's not. You know, and you know it too. So stop sitting here and trying to tell yeah. me that, hey, it's good for people because yeah. it's not. You know, um, and, and I had some friends, and I didn't quite say it that way, but I do when people are trying to use that for mm -hmm. convince people they're real. But I've had some people that later became friends um, that I've written that story up about. And I said, you know what? You gave me a whole new perception on this. You know, I've always believed in this, and I've always thought it was good for people. And you know what? I do readings, and I do stuff like that. He says, but I'm really starting to think about it from a different way now. And thanks to you, rather than you attacking me or coming at us because of that, you gave a story and you gave an example, which finally put it in, you know, something I could actually tangible that I can look at yeah. and I can walk away with and understand, yeah, maybe he is doing some damage. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe what he's doing is not good. So, you okay. know, yeah. Just getting back to Geller for one second. In your dealings with Geller, did he ever admit to you that what he's doing is all mentalism and magic? No, he never did. But, never but, did. but, 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 um, we did have a thing, and this doesn't mean a whole lot, because you know what? He is so good at being able to take something and put twist on it in the end, you know, and that's part of what, and I'm good at that too, you know, I mean, um, so on Mind Freak, um, Geller was there and, and Chris had him on the show and sat there with him and uh, really talked to him and tried to get him to admit it was all a trick and, and Geller wouldn't do that. So, so Chris finally put him in a corner and I felt a little awkward about it, but you know, it was what it was. He put him in a corner and he said, look, I'm going to put this spoon down on the table right now. He said, if you bent that right now, right now, if you bent that, would it be a trick? And Geller said, well, I wouldn't do it right now. I don't do that anymore. He said, no, but if you did that right now, would it be a trick? And Geller said, if I bent that right now, yeah, it would be a trick. I thought, oh, man, wow, Eureka, well, he just admitted it. Well, and then yeah. after we walked away from there, you know, Geller said to me, he says, I, I didn't say that I, I wasn't real. You know that, you know. <laughs> That's right. He said, I said, if clever. I did it at that moment, it would be a trick sure. because mm -hmm. I can't just do it like that right. anymore. Yes, very yeah, clever. Yeah. Very clever. Yeah, very, exactly. Very so, so it's it's – it's clever, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't care what you say about the guy. It's clever, you know. Well, um, Randy and Johnny Carson, that, you know, you know, yeah, yeah, they, no, they proved yeah. it. We don't, yeah. we don't even need to ask the question. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we all know it's not. You know, we know that damage is done by those kind of things. You know, we know what kind of people are the kind of people that will do damage to people and not even think about it for their own gain. Yeah. So we know what we already think. Well, Banachek, this has been wonderful. You've been incredibly generous with your time, and uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. No, thank you all. I hope I didn't say anything that I'm going to get in trouble with all my uh, fellow magicians <laughs> and out there. Heck no. And now I probably just put that in their heads. So <laughs> we'll cut that out. Thank you all very much. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. Then I challenge my expert skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week's challenge? Ready and excited, mm -hmm. Steve. All right, here Continue. we go. <laughs> Item number one. 
A new report warns travelers to the Beijing Olympics that the most common illnesses contracted by visitors are malaria and dengue fever. Item number two. New research shows that free radicals are used to signal satiety in the brain, suggesting that antioxidants may increase appetite. And item number three, NASA's Cassini probe has confirmed for the first time surface liquid on a body other than Earth, an ethane lake on the surface of Titan. Oh, man. Let's see. Whose turn is it to go first? I'll go first. All right, Jay, Jay, you go first. I mean, the dengue, dengue fever, Steve? I think, I think it's pronounced dengue. 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 Oh, good. That means you've heard of it. Thanks, Bob. All right. So I guess number one isn't the fake. Because I was going to be like, man, there's just no way that Steve would make that up. That's too That's too sounding like it was made up. So I would believe that those things happen to people that go to Beijing. From what I understand, it's, you know, the city is um, is pretty dirty, even though they've been trying to clean it up. And the air quality is very poor and crazy overpopulation. Um, overpopulation equ- equates to over sewage, and I could just see nastiness abounding there. So, uh, the second one: new research shows that free radicals are used to satiety in the brain. Satiety. Satiety. That's, that's the feeling of being full, full or contested. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And then NASA's Cassini probe has confirmed for the first time that they found surface liquid on a body. I didn't hear that, and that's what's strange. I think I would have heard that one. However, I'm gonna go with the I'm gonna go with the free radical one as the fake. Okay, Evan. Ooh, this is so tough. Um, the reports warning travelers about the Beijing Olympics and the common illnesses, malaria and dengue fever. I think that one is science. I think you put this in here, Steve, because malaria, dengue fever. These are disease that you you would more associate with maybe an African, Middle Eastern country or something like that. Not all the way in China. However, uh, I'm not at all, I would not at all be surprised that that is in fact the case. So I'll say that one's science. Free radicals used to signal that you're full. Sure. The Cassini probe confirming surface liquid on a body other than Earth, instead on the surface of Titan. Boy, that's exact same as Jay. I did not hear this. And I thought I would hear this. But I think the antioxidant story is the fiction of these three. Antioxidants increasing appetite, fiction. Okay, Bob. These are tricky. Um, let's, I'll dispense with uh, three. The Cassini probe confirmed uh, liquid on a body other than Earth. I'm going to buy that one. Now, the n- number one, the uh, travelers being warned of uh, nasty illnesses. C- the common illnesses for the Beijing Olymp- Olympics might be Malaria and dengue fever, they are nasty. Those are some nasty diseases, and it's just surprising to me that they would be the, the most common illnesses in a major city in China. That I'm just having ver- a lot of trouble with that because they are vile f- diseases. Yeah, I didn't think um, about that, Bob. You're right. And it just surprises me. Uh, and the free radicals, this actually, uh, at first I said, what? But now it's making a little bit of sense. I mean, free radicals are byproducts of of metabolism. And when you eat, eating will rev up your metabolism. Therefore, free radical, more free radicals maybe would be produced. So I guess your brain could use that as a signal. But uh, aren't there other ways to to increase free radicals? Um, So that, that makes a smidgen more sense to me than 
malaria and dengue fever being the most common illnesses. I mean, I have to say the malaria one is is fiction. Uh, here we go. Okay, so you all <laughs> agree that NASA's Cassini probe has confirmed for the first time surface liquid on a body other than Earth, an ethane lake on the surface of Titan. And that's and science. That is science. That is science. Very cool. Yeah. Just announced today. This is probably why you didn't hear it. So the uh, specific cameras on the Cassini probe, which is around Saturn, and Titan is the largest moon of Saturn. In fact, it's the largest way. Is Titan the largest moon in the solar system still, or did no, Ganymede? I, I think um, mm. it used to be the largest moon, but now they downgraded its size because they really? figured that some of it was clouds. Uh-huh. And, and then Ganymede of Jupiter is now the largest moon in the solar system. I'm pretty sure that's true. Uh, but anyway, Titan is the second largest moon in the solar system. And it has lots of hydrocarbons on it. That, that much we knew. And they suspected that if there's lots of hydrocarbons on Titan, that maybe there might be lakes of ethane and methane. And uh, the, see, these suspicions were, were recently confirmed by the Cassini probe. Uh, so there is a lake of primarily liquid ethane in a lake called Ontario Lacus. Steve, do you think anything can live in ethane? Well, nothing that we know of. I mean, that would have to be a completely different form of life than anything that we're familiar with. That would be an extreme extremophile. Plus, what the hell is the temperature on the surface of that moon? Yeah, it's very cold. Cold. That's why you get things like liquid ethane. Yeah. That's cool. Very cool. The lake is about 235 kilometers or 150 miles long. It's it's pretty big. big. It's a big boy. Mm. Yeah, especially for a a moon. As big as what? Lake Ontario, I think. Wow. 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 Is that why they call it Ontario Lacus? Good resale value on that water. (laughs) Did you say that? That's its name, yeah. Uh, so let's go to uh, let's go to the first one. Mm. A new report warns travelers to the Beijing Olympics that the most common illnesses contracted by visitors are malaria and dengue fever. Uh, that's the key word, visitors, Bob. <laughs> yeah, so it certainly would be surprising Still. if a lot of people in Beijing who live there were getting these infectious diseases. You would think that they would be taking precautions against them. Uh, and visitors may neglect to do that. Uh, however, this is... Fiction. Ah, Bob got this one correct. Good work, Bob. In fact, these types of exotic tropical diseases are what most people worry about when they travel abroad, especially to places like the Far East. But they're actually quite rare uh, among visitors. So this is a study published in the American Journal of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. And what they did was they reviewed... Uh, 10 years of records of travelers to China looking at the illnesses and ailments that they were treated for while in tr- China and what they were sought and what they sought treatment for upon return to their home and dengue fever and malaria actually were not reported in their survey which is a, a bit of a surprise guess what the f- the top 2 ailments were uh, uh, dysent- dysentery. Dysentery was up there. That's a good guess, Jay. Uh, that was uh, flu. That was one of the more common ones. STD. And wait, wait. I have another guess. Uh, some type of some type of uh, problem with breathing. Yeah, respiratory illnesses yeah. was yeah. the <laughs> most common. Yeah, yeah, good one, Jay. Of course. <laughs> yeah, that, that's breathing. obvious, right? Yeah, from the from the pollution. Uh-huh. And this was surprising to me. Number two, dog bites. Whoa. <laughs> what? What? 
Wait, 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 is that because they're like lots of people are cooking dogs over there? I don't know. <laughs> they're not pets, right? They, they, do they have? They don't have they, dogs as pets, really, right? Uh, I guess there must be a lot of um, dogs with rabies, you know, in in wild oh, in the streets nice. or something. So it says dog bites in humans can lead to human rabies. So that was they specifically warned about that. You can get inoculated for that though before you get over there, right? Yeah, so they do think that people traveling there should get their rabies vaccination. That's the recommendation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you want That's autism. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Which means new research shows that free radicals are used to signal satiety in the brain, suggesting that antioxidants may increase appetite is science. Fascinating. Yeah, this is cool. So, and Bob, you, you're exactly right that... Free radicals are a product of metabolism, so any feedback mechanism where you're trying to look at metabolism might use or exploit production of free radicals for that feedback mechanism, right? You know, evolution is just yeah. works with what's at hand. This, the other interesting bit here is that... Yeah, the antioxidants increasing it, appetite. The, the brain uh, generally uses glucose for fuel, and this, you know, led to the the belief that that it does not use fat as fuel. But what they found, this is a, a new a study published in Nature. Parts of the brain do use fat as fuel, and the the study also showed that the minute by minute hmm. control of appetite was regulated by free radicals. This implied that if you interfere with free radicals, you may affect eating and satiety. So there is no clinical evidence that that's, in fact, what does happen. It just suggests that that may happen. But it also may provide a method for uh, decreasing appetite. You might be able, we might be able to exploit that the other way. Interestingly, he said, the author said that whenever you feel full, that might indicate that you're aging your brain through free radical yep. damage. Yeah. <laughs> what? So oh, maybe. come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is really like, that's a kick in the freaking gut it right is. there, right? It really is. That's like, whenever you're happy, you're dying. <laughs> Every time you have an orgasm, you lose function, you lose mobility in your shoulders. Like, you know, don't even say that if it's true. Like, I don't need to hear that. <laughs> well, Jay, yeah, I mean, Bob, just stop. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> like, just let me please live. Here's the, how it works. Whatever little fantasy I have left about happiness, could I just live it out? <laughs> like, don't go there, man. All right, so I, I have a quote, Steve. Jay, hit me with your quote. I got the quote. I hit me. Pre- preempted your Jay. Do you have a quote question? With I have one. <laughs> um, I, I found a cool quote by a very important man in history who has who goes virtually uh, unrecognized by the general public. But he almost was the person who found the theory of relativity. He came close, but he, he missed it on a few details. Anyone want to guess who he is? Um, <laughs> Henri Poincaré? Ben Stein? Steve, very good. Yeah. Very, very interesting history. He basically figured out the need for something like special and general relativity, but he couldn't believe that the universe actually worked that way. Whereas Einstein was the first one to say, no, this, this is actually how the universe works. It's not just a mathematical fix. You know, This is telling us something fundamental about the nature of the universe itself. Poincaré wouldn't go there. Einstein did. And when I read some of his quotes, I thought, my God, what was it like to be a skeptic or a logical thinker back in the late 1800s? Imagine 
the lack of scientific thinking, the lack of, of any kind of real reasoning by the general public. I mean, that guy, these people were like islands. They were by themselves. Yeah, I was going to say, they didn't really engage the public as much as we do today either. I mean, they, they you know, there was a community of scientists pretty much talking with themselves, you know, not yeah. necessarily engaging or popularizing what they were doing. However, it's quote time. So he said, doubt everything or believe everything. These are two equally convenient strategies. With either, we dispense with the need for reflection. Henri Poincaré! (laughs) 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 Thank you, Jay. C'est magnifique. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, basically uh, an eloquent way of saying that uh, a lot of people are intellectually lazy. Right. And find excuses for not thinking about stuff. Well, thanks for joining me again this week, everyone. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.